Yeah, we're in Acts chapter 19 if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, we actually made it through the first couple of verses in Acts chapter 19 last week. Um, we're there. We're, we're in the midst still of Paul's third missionary journey, which is Paul's longest missionary journey. And it's also, as we're going to see, uh, will end up being Paul's last missionary journey. This will be his last time to make his circuits around the churches and, and spread the gospel through all of these areas. Um, at the beginning of chapter 19, we looked at this uh, event where the Apostle Paul has come back to the, the Apostle Paul has come back to Ephesus, where he made a very short visit previously. He came back to Ephesus and he found this group of 12 men that Luke um, seemingly graciously called disciples. But Paul meets these, these group of men and he starts probing into their, their knowledge of Jesus and of the, the giving of the Spirit. And, and basically what ended up happening was, was coming to find out these men really didn't even have a sufficient knowledge of, of what was done through Christ, of what Jesus had accomplished. They didn't even know of the Holy Spirit, it says, um, these things. So Paul shared with them the fullness of the gospel. Um, they all believed and they were all baptized. And uh, so that, that's the first thing that Paul encountered as he came to Ephesus. Now we're going to go on and, and see what else Paul does in the city of Ephesus because here he's going to spend the longest amount of time that he spends in any other city in Ephesus is where he's going to stay for three years as we'll see. So let's just pick up in verse 8 where we left off. It says, uh, speaking of Paul, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So this is Paul's normal, uh, his normal route and his normal... A way of entering into a city. When he enters into a new city, the first place he goes is into the synagogue. And he points the Jews in the synagogue to who their Messiah is. And he uses the scriptures to reason with them and prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. Um, that's what Paul always does. And here he does the same thing as he comes back into Ephesus. He goes into the synagogue. And this time in Ephesus, the text tells us that he's actually able to minister in the synagogue for three months. Um, I don't know how Paul was able to minister in the synagogue for three months. Normally, his first sermon starts a riot. Uh, but somehow in Ephesus, he's actually there. To, he's able to reason with them for three months, where eventually um, they become hardened, and, and, and Paul's welcome is, is over. And uh, so what Paul does is he leaves the synagogue. He goes to this, this school, this school of Tyrannus, which means the school of the tyrant, and uh, he, it's actually this facility is, is made available to him. He's actually able to take his disciples and teach them there. Uh, most of the commentators uh, said he just probably used this facility in the off hours when the teaching of the school wasn't uh, being used. But this facility was opened up to the Apostle Paul to, to teach, uh, to teach the disciples there who, who were receiving the gospel. Um, verse 10 here goes on to tell us that Paul taught there for two additional years. So for two years, Paul was teaching in this facility, this school of Tyrannus as it's called, 
And so as I thought about that and, and thought about how this is the longest that Paul's been able to stay anywhere, can you imagine uh, being a disciple, a new believer there in Ephesus and having the Apostle Paul there for years at your disposal, for years they're able to teach you in this school? I mean, it was, that, that's, a, that's a grace. I mean, we're going to see God is very gracious to the people in Ephesus. Um, God, God allows the Apostle Paul to stay here for a long period of time. He has a very uh, wide open door to share the gospel. And uh, here the text goes on, verse 10, to tell us what is the result. What is the result of having the Apostle Paul in your midst, um, able to preach and teach unprohibited for two years? The text goes on to say that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's amazing how, how the gospel was going out and how it says everyone. Of course, that doesn't mean every single person. You know, all doesn't mean all, all the time. But, but what Luke's emphasizing is that the gospel went just out uninhibited for, for two years. And the apostle Paul and all the disciples that were created, the gospel just spread like wildfire through Asia to where everyone heard it, Jew and Greek. And... Uh, even though, of course, having the Word of God preached and taught is sufficient, having the Word of God is sufficient to save, it's sufficient to disciple, it's sufficient for, for all of these things, but God even goes another step farther. Look at verse 11. Even more than just providing the Word of God to everyone, God goes a step farther and it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. And so this is why I say that Ephesus was most assuredly being blessed by God. They had the, the unprohibited, uninhibited teaching of Paul. They had these, uh, what, what it describes here is extraordinary miracles. I don't know what, I mean, a normal miracle you know, that's something. But Paul, it says, was doing extraordinary miracles among the people. Um, you know, so, so we see all the graces being poured out with this, this city in Ephesus. But um, I, it also brought to mind uh, this reference because as we think of all these graces that were given to this city, um, with all this revelation that was given to them, does anybody remember um, from the book of Revelation, from the second chapter, um, the very first letter written to the seven churches was to this city, to the city of Ephesus. And does anybody remember what, what Jesus Christ's rebuke was to this city? Does anybody remember off the top of your head? And they left their first letter. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. With all these graces, with all of these uh, benefits that, that God had poured out in this city, um, Jesus comes to them years later and rebukes them for having left their first love. You know, so that, that's a warning for, for us as well. You know, we, we, we are very thankful for all of the, the, the doctrine and theology and just the, the open eyes and ears that God has been gracious to give to us. Um, but, but look what happens to churches that had the same thing. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't take hold of that, that grace. They didn't benefit it. They didn't combine it with faith, and they left their first love, it says. You know, the commentators go back and forth, which I didn't realize they did on this issue. I thought, it was, I thought that verse always meant that they had left their first love for Christ. A lot of commentators see that as being that, um, like we've been seeing how the gospel spread like wildfire, that the gospel didn't continue to spread. 
Like they quit loving people, they quit sharing the gospel, which if you don't love people, you don't love God either. So the same thing's there, but um, even with all this grace, you know, I just thought it as a warning to us, you know, that our theology, our, our, our doctrine must lead us to a, a more faith and, and practice and love for others and spread the gospel. If it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's falling on deaf ears, really, if you don't combine it with faith. So, yeah, so make sure that all of your theology and all of your study of the word lead you to worship. If it doesn't, you're, you're wasting your time. And you're probably just building yourself up with knowledge, which is going to make you prideful. You know, so it always must be combined with faith. It always must lead you to worship. Um, so the text goes on. Um, here, as, as Luke's been fond to do, it seems, in the book of Acts, here he's actually going to give us what seems to be like some comical relief in this story that he, that he lays out for us here. Uh, he's going to tell us now about the, there's these overconfident um, exorcists in the city of Ephesus who are going to get humbled really quick by their, their lack of understanding of demonology and, and how the power of God really uh, is ministered. Let's read this section starting at verse 13. It says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. You see, you understand what's happening there? These, these, they, they thought of themselves as exorcists. Nobody knows how successful they were or weren't. They were these Jewish um, background people who, who tried to perform exorcists. But they're, they're, they see that, that Paul is able to cast out demons. He has this ability and that, that Paul's naming the name of Jesus as he does these things. So they, they try the name out too. You know, they're going around trying to cast out demons by using Jesus' name as well. Um, these seven guys, seven sons of one, one man named Sceva, who was a uh, Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. Verse 15 says, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was this evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So what was the, what was the misunderstanding? What was the error of these exorcists? Why did they end up getting beat up by this demon rather than able to exercise uh, the demon as Paul was able to and the other apostles? What, what do you think their error was? They didn't really have Jesus. They were just applying the name they'd heard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically they were trying to use the name of Jesus as like some sort of magic formula. You know, like they thought it was just, just the words. You know, like we hear, that, we hear a lot, you know, and the Bible uses the language in the name of Jesus quite often. But in that, it's not, just, it's not just spelling out a magical formula. It's not just the words, right? It's, it's, it's the person for whom those words uh, connotate. So, you know, God's only going to use the name of Jesus for those who actually have faith in him, who have actually honored that name by having faith in that name. He's not going to, some unbelieving Jews aren't going to be able to use that name to cast out demons, you see. So, so basically, they, they didn't understand their demonology, and they didn't understand... Um, the power of God and how God um, honors his name and honors uh, the power of Jesus. So verse 17 goes on here. Uh, look at the reaction of this incident. Look at the reaction of all the people in Ephesus to this incident. Verse 17 says that this event became known to all 
both Jews and Greeks, all who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And so I saw this, this instance as being sort of similar to uh, when we looked at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where God struck them down um, for lying to the Holy Spirit. But the, the reaction of, was the same for everyone. There was a great fear fell upon everybody. And it seems like whenever this, this veil is removed, that kind of separates the seen and the unseen, you know, the spiritual realities that are unseen. When this becomes obvious to people, um, it really does bring a fear. It brings a fear upon everybody, um, the supernatural, you know. Um, I thought it was interesting here in the text that not only were, were new converts being shooken and, and, and being brought to faith by, the, by all this reality, but... Um, look at verse 18 because uh, here even the believers were being sanctified by, by all of this revelation. Verse, eight, verse 18 says, many of those who had believed, so these are people who had already believed in the past, they kept coming, confessing and dis disclosing their practices. So they were even being more and more sanctified. Even the, even the Christians were disclosing some of these practices, they did these um, uh, basically like idolatrous black magic type practices that they were still holding on to. Um, this shook them and they even became more sanctified and began to, uh, to burn all of the, the things that they had that were, that were tied with, with these things. So, uh, you know, it just brought a really healthy fear upon everyone, even upon the church. The church was even sanctified uh, by this. And it caused what is really a massive revival you know, the commentators try to do the math and try to figure out how, how big of a, uh, of, a, of a revival that this was, being that it says 50,000 uh, pieces of silver worth of stuff was being burned. I mean, some estimated to like $6 million worth of stuff in, in our time, which this would have just been a, I mean, an innumerable amount of people were, were being um, sanctified by this and, it, and it were fearing God because of it. And... Uh, so this really was, uh, what I'm trying to say, just a really massive revival breaking out uh, in Ephesus here. And uh, these people were burning their paraphernalia of witchcraft and these types of things. And, and this, this huge ordeal, this huge revival was not going unnoticed uh, by those people in the city who were still yet unbelieving. Let's pick up in verse 23 and see what, what, what's done about this, this mass revival. Uh, verse 23 says, About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity demands upon this business, or depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the whole world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And so I don't want you to be fooled by um, some of Demetrius's rhetoric here, um, because at the beginning of his speech, he really showed his true concern. His true concern, he's appealing to these idol makers um, at the fear that they may lose financial um, benefits from the making of their idols. Um, he, he goes on in the second part of what he just said there to talk and pull on the heartstrings of the people appealing to, their, to the honor of this great goddess Artemis. But he's, you know, he's, he's really concerned about losing money and losing their business. And uh, this, this goddess Artemis that he's talking about, um, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, just like Athens that we looked at, uh, this is a, a city full of idol worship. And uh, there were many gods in Ephesus, just like Athens, of course, but there was none as prominent, there was none as, as great to them as the goddess Artemis. The goddess Artemis uh, was the, the goddess of fertility, uh, the Romans called her Diana. You may know her as the, the goddess Diana. Uh, but the Ephesians, what they had done was they had constructed a massive temple to the goddess Artemis. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. If you just look up the seven wonders of the ancient world, this was one of them. But um, it was made entirely of marble. It was four times, they say, the size of the Parthenon that was in Athens that the Athenians made to uh, the goddess uh, Athena. But this thing was massive. I've seen, I looked at pictures of it. Just the measurements was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high. It was held by 127 pillars, all completely made of marble. So this thing was extraordinary. And so people came from literally all over the world to see this temple and to, and to I guess, worship as well. Because what people did is they came to visit the temple. They took home with them. Um, these little shrines, these little idols that, w that Demetrius and these other guys had, had made and produced. And so many people came to see this temple and took with them and bought these shrines. And so that's what Demetrius is really sounding the warning bell about as he's, war he's warning all these idol makers that they should be worried they're about to be put out of business uh, because the preaching of the Apostle Paul is turning so many people from idol worship that it's actually affecting of business, you know, that's, that's quite amazing. You know, I just try to put it in our context, you know. Um, that would be like if we, if we were to so spread the gospel and have so many converts that we were putting bars and strip clubs and things like that out of business, that's the type of impact we're talking about here. I mean, putting vices out of the city, putting people out of business. That's quite, that's quite an amazing feat here that God did in the city. So, yeah, uh, Demetrius is... is, is basically pleading with the people that a couple of their idols, not only their idol Artemis is in danger, but also uh, their favorite idol, which is their pocketbooks, is likewise in danger. And so look what they do after hearing this speech by Demetrius. Verse 28 says, When they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius, in Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And so we knew it wouldn't be long, you know. So here's the riot that follows the Apostle Paul. But this riot ensues. Uh, 
a couple of his companions, it says, get dragged in. Obviously, Paul wasn't right there. They grabbed some of his companions. Um, Paul actually tries to go in to um, probably help the situation, probably to defend the gospel, defend um, his, his friends, but the brethren won't allow it. Uh, these, two, these two brethren who are dragged in, they don't end up getting hurt. What ends up happening, just to summarize, is that God really in his common grace um, uses the common sense of the town clerk here in Ephesus, and the town clerk comes in and, and, and disperses the crowd, silences the crowd, and his plea is that uh, we're going to be held accountable to the Romans for this riot, and that we don't want to get in trouble with the Romans, because the Romans, this is still a Roman city. And so God uses this unbelieving town clerk to really disseminate the crowd before any of the believers are hurt. Um, as usual, uh, the city here turning into an uproar with this mob violence, these people, as Paul will go on to describe, are acting like wild beasts. Um, this is normally Paul's cue to leave a city, and so it is here as well. Paul's going to get ready to leave Ephesus at this point. Uh, but what I wanted to do before we leave Ephesus with Paul here, um, I just wanted us to stop for a moment to consider just um, consider God's work in this city of Ephesus, just to think about how significant the city of Ephesus was to Paul himself and to the early spread of the gospel. And so I just had a few notes here, um, some things I've even mentioned already, but, you know, as we go through the book of Ephesus, and, I mean, the book of Acts, and we, and we see all these cities that later have letters written to them, you know, it's helpful to, to, to almost um, get to know these cities. Because it's going to help you as you learn to read the epistles to them. You know, we, we can learn a lot just from the historical narrative of these cities as we read through Paul's writings to them. It helps. And so just let me remind you of some of the things here that, that have happened in the city of Ephesus. Um, as I said, Paul spent more time, by far, twice as long really, in the city of Ephesus with the people of Ephesus than he did with any other people. The only closest other city was Corinth. He spent about a year and a half. Here he spent three years with these people. Um, Ephesus really uh, becomes the hub of evangelism and outreach um, to the point, as we read in, in chapter 19, verse 10, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, from Paul's work there in Ephesus. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord as a result of this. And so um, Ephesus was just a huge center for evangelistic outreach of the word of God. Uh, but not only was it a center and a hub for the, the preaching of the Word of God evangelistically, um, but it was also very critical um, to the inscripturation of the Word of God and in the, in the letters that we have in the canon of our, of our New Testament. Let me just point out some of those points here. It says, uh, um, while Paul was here in Ephesus, this is where he penned his, his first letter to the church in Corinth. That happened while Paul was here in Ephesus. Um, when Paul is later taken to Rome, much later under house arrest, he's going to write that epistle to the Ephesians that we know about, the letter to the Ephesians. He's actually going to write them uh, a letter that's in the canon of Scripture. And then we also have a couple more letters uh, that could be considered, um, maybe nobody considers them second and third Ephesians, but they could be. What letters might be considered second and third Ephesians? Any thoughts on that? What letters, you probably never heard anybody say that, and I probably won't ever say it again, but, um, but if you think about it, Paul is going to write First and Second Timothy 
to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus. So they're actually going to get a couple more letters from the Apostle Paul. Timothy actually takes over as a elder um, in the city of Ephesus after Paul leaves. And so Paul will actually write him uh, two more letters. The Apostle John as well will one day find his way to the city of Ephesus. John will actually write his gospel and his three um, epistles from Ephesus. And also the book of Revelation was written from Patmos, which is actually very close to Ephesus as well. And so there are just so many connections that, uh, to the Word of God, to the actual canon of Scripture, that Ephesus was just um, right there involved with. All of these Scriptures funneled through the city of Ephesus, and, and that truth led Simon Kistemacher, who's um, one of my favorite commentators, uh, not only on the book of Acts, on several books, but this is what he said about the city of Ephesus just due to all of this reality. He said, in a manner of speaking... As the Jews had been entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures, so the Ephesians became the custodians of the New Testament books. <laughs> that's, how much, that's how much role and significance that Ephesus had in, in the New Testament canon. That's not, I didn't realize that, you know, still going through all this. So that was interesting to me. So, so that's Ephesus. Paul's now going to get ready to leave Ephesus. You know, that's what usually happens when the riots and he tries to get killed. That's usually his cue to exit. So let's start off chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Philip, I mean, uh, what's the cities I have here in Macedonia, just to remind you, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, these cities. Verse 2 says, When he had gone through those districts, and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. He came to Greece. What, what, cities, what city in particular is in Greece? Paul's already been there once. Does anybody remember? Athens. Athens. Yeah, he's coming back to Athens. This day will actually, he'll actually go to Corinth, which is very near here as well. Verse 3 says, And there in Greece he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to return through Macedonia. Okay, so here's another plot, again, to uh, kill the Apostle Paul. But this right here is a very interesting turn of events for the Apostle Paul in this third missionary journey because um, what he's trying to do, he was trying to come to Athens to set sail to go back to Syria. What, what cities um, would he be going back to? What cities are in Syria or around the area of Syria that he would have been headed to? You can use your cheat sheet and go back to the map. Antioch. Antioch, his home church. Yep, that's right. Syrian Antioch, his home church, was where he would go back to as well. Also, um, Jerusalem is really where he's wanting to go, um, would be included in that region as well as, as Luke's describing it here. So Paul's trying to get back to Syria, and, uh, but he hears of this plot to kill him. You know... Paul obviously wasn't preaching, you know, a seeker-sensitive message. Paul wasn't running around telling people, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. <coughs> Everywhere he went, they tried to kill him, you know. So he definitely was antagonistic towards what the people were used to hearing. You know, yes, sir? Hey, you know, that also brings up another issue, Chris, that, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't preaching a seeker-sensitive message, mm -hmm. but he also wasn't being persecuted because he was being rude, mm -hmm. you know, or offensive. Right. 
Yeah, which was offensive. <laughs> the truth was offensive. Paul wasn't. You know, Paul. You know, Paul's the one who encourages us to do it. You know, humbly and graciously. You know, that doesn't mean you can preach the truth as gracious as you possibly can. People still won't like it. You know, people will be offended. As gracious as we should be, as gracious as we can be. Um, so yeah, so Paul's trying to get back to Syria, but the Jews once again are trying to kill him. And so what happens is because of this plot to kill him, he doesn't get on the boat. He ends up going back by foot, back north. He's going to go all the way back through Macedonia, which is where he just came from. So this is a major diversion to what Paul's plans were. And uh, so what, what, they, what they guess, what they, uh, what they suppose here is that probably the plot was to have an accidental man overboard or something like that. You know, that's why Paul didn't want to get on the ship. So he doesn't get on the ship. He ends up by foot going back north through Macedonia. But what's interesting here in verse 4 is that Luke here lists for us, uh, which he hasn't before to this extent, all of these traveling companions who are with the Apostle Paul. And so what's interesting about this list is that when you look and notice um, the wide variety of locations that these men are from, uh, it's very interesting because the Apostle Paul, as we said, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He's actually, he says, trying to get there by Pentecost. He actually has a date that he's trying to get there by. And uh, we know from 2 Corinthians as well, from our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you remember, um, that Paul's also bringing a financial gift um, from all of the churches around Macedonia and Galatia. He's trying to bring this financial gift to the struggling churches in Judea. So all of these things are going on. So with all of that uh, knowledge put together, what, what, what we think is happening here is this, these, these group of men that are accompanying Paul, these are most likely representatives from the churches who have given to this, uh, to this gift that he's taken to Judea, and they're representatives of the churches in Macedonia and Galatia. And they're all accompanying Paul um, with him to bring this gift. And so, uh, you know, the more I go through the book of Acts, the more connections I start seeing between, especially 2 Corinthians that we've been studying, but all kinds of, all kinds of epistles, all kinds of, of books in the New Testament, um, that I'm just seeing how all these things developed. And it's been very helpful for me. You know, I wish all you guys were there with me studying. I know I'm probably only communicating like one-tenth of what I'm getting from my studies, but... You know, I just, I, I read one section in 1 Corinthians, and as I read this section, I don't even know why I got there, what rabbit trail I was chasing, but I just read through this section of Scripture, and I said, you know what, I actually understand what's going on here. Before, before Acts, before 2 Corinthians, I wouldn't have even had a clue about what the background was between any of these things. Let's just turn there, because we have time, we're doing pretty well, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're just going to read... A little section of scripture here, you know, and, uh, and so many dots got connected for me just in this little section of scripture right here that, that I really didn't have before in my tool bag. First Corinthians chapter 16, even opening up here, you know, it's talking about the collection for the saints. That's why I think all these men were traveling with Paul as part of this collection. But look, let's just read this section and see how many things ring a bell from what we studied in Acts and from Second Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Um, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. 
When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That's what we've been looking at right there. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So that's kind of a, the reference to what we're looking at here with these other men. Paul says, but I will go, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Right? You just told us about that. For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We see the adversaries causing a plot to kill the Apostle Paul. All of these things. And now, a couple mention of a couple men we've picked up in the book of Acts. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work, as I also in am. Let no one despise him. Verse 12, concerning Apollos. So, just in that little section, I mean, all of the Apollos, we saw his, his uh, mention of him in, in Acts chapter 18 as, as um, that husband and wife duo helped him in his uh, knowledge of, of what Jesus Christ had done. Timothy, we've seen in the book of Acts, Paul meet Timothy and take him under his wing. Here he mentions Ephesus, trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, the collection, all of these things. All of these things, we've actually um, developed the background from the book of Acts. So, I don't know, I just wanted to go there because that was all very helpful for me. Um, let me see here. Any questions? about anything we've looked at so far? About where Paul's going? What he's been doing? Um, so let's see. So, yeah, this is where we're at here. Uh, there's been the plot. Paul's going to end up having to go back up through Macedonia. I mean, this is hundreds of miles out of the way for the Apostle Paul that he's having to go. I mean, you talk about being willing to submit to the, the, the will of God and providence. The Apostle Paul, his desires did not come to fruition here in his missionary journeys. He ended up going hundreds of miles out of the way. And uh, so he goes, if you, if you remember from your maps, if you even turn back there, he's going all the way back north through Macedonia, around the uh, GNC, and he's going to come all the way back down with this group of guys, and they're going to stop at the city of Troas. In verse 7, we pick up here with a little event in the city of Troas. It says, There, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And so here, just already, I just stopped to, to point out, here we have the first mention, really, of this, this gathering of the early church on the first day of the week, that phrase, that designation of, of what is now Sunday. Uh, the church here gathers on the first day of the week, to break bread and to have the Apostle Paul teach, what, what's the significance, do you think, of the early church? I mean, as you go on and read more epistles, we even saw in 1 Corinthians 16 that I just referenced. There they gathered on the first day of the week as well. Um, what, what was the significance? Why did the early church decide to gather on the first day of the week? Any ideas? Why not Tuesday, you know? In honor of the resurrection? Yep. Yeah, I think so. The resurrection, the first day of the week, the church, uh, yeah, the church gathered on the first day of the week in, in commemoration of Jesus' resurrection. You know, this day, if you look in the book of Revelation, is, is John designates this day and calls it the day of the Lord. You know, 
in commemoration of the resurrection. So this is really um, the precedent and the example that we have for meeting on Sundays, you know, the early church in honor of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ met on that day. You know, as I've been going through the book of Acts, I've been noticing it throughout. I haven't really mentioned it, but um, notice what this gathering day of the church is not called. It's not called the Sabbath day. It's not called the Christian Sabbath. It's not what Luke's referring to. Um, actually, in, in Acts chapter 18, Luke did mention the Sabbath. And guess what the Sabbath still is in, Luke, in, in Acts chapter 18? It's still the Jewish Sabbath day, the Old Covenant Sabbath day. You know, we don't see any mention of any transfer of day from the Sabbath to Sunday. You know, it's just, you just don't see that. And what's interesting is, like when Luke writes this, um, I think I dated this book, Acts, to like the mid-60s, early 60s. So that's, what, 40 years after, or 30 years after, after Christ? The Sabbath is still the Sabbath, you know, and the church is now meeting on Sundays, but there's no inter-carryover um, between those two days. Yes, Emilio? Yeah, you don't like to talk about this. So, um, yeah, thank you. But, Take this one for me. <laughs> no, but I just, the observation that, mm-hmm. you know, I've always understood is that the church was actually, uh, in Christ, you know, by rising on the first day of the week, and then the church gathers on the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, almost like it, on purpose or intentionally, breaking away from the Jewish Sabbath, mm-hmm. distinguishing itself away from Sabbatarianism and beginning a whole new projection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just don't see too much interrelation between them. You know, it's like a whole new thing. It's a whole new institution that, that is here for the, for the church. Yeah, so, so as they do this, as they meet, it says here they met and to break bread. And we're going to see for the apostles' teaching. You know, I had to deal with that phrase, the breaking of bread, you know, earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 2. Um, the breaking of bread, I think, refers to um, not only the Lord's Supper, I think it does refer to that, but they also partook of what they called like a love feast, just a, a fellowship meal. They came together and they broke bread as a fellowship meal, and they, they usually ended the meal with the the formal Lord's Supper. Uh, so that's what they were doing here. They came together on the first, uh, the first day of the week. And they also came together for Paul's teaching as verse, as the second part of chapter 7 shows us. I mean, uh, verse 7. And so as Paul's teaching here, as the church comes together, they break bread. Paul's teaching, another very interesting event occurs in the life of Paul here, which by this time it just seems to be a day in the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, people dying, riots you know, murder plots. You know, I just thought, man, Christianity doesn't have to be boring. You know what I mean? Some people, I mean, they become Christians, nothing really you know, happens, they give them. I mean, man, if you're living a Christian life, I mean, it's exciting. You will suffer persecution. You know, that's a promise. And if you're not, something's going on. You're not, you're not telling somebody something. You know, so I mean, the Apostle Paul's life was exciting. Um, so look what happens here this night, which seems like it's probably just going to be a normal night of teaching and breaking bread. Uh, but halfway through verse 7 it says, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Notice where we were gathered together. This is another we section of the book of Acts where Luke now is included. You know, he hasn't been included, but Luke here, the writer of the book of Acts, is now here with them. And it says there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window seal, and he was sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. 
And he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. And they took away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. And so in this, this little... Um, this little excerpt here. There's several things we can take away from this incident. Um, first, um, I think it's just funny. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we know that the boy ends up being, you know, resurrected and healed. But um, it's just funny. I think that the Bible includes somebody falling asleep in church. You know, <laughs> maybe that's just near and dear to me. I don't know. Um, the second point, and more seriously, is that what we see here is the devotion and the willingness of the early church to, to teach and to be taught the Word of God uh, into the very wee hours of the night, into the actual morning, it says here. Um, to, to the early church, the Word of God was life and death. This was no small thing, you know. They, these folks weren't sitting around as Paul was preaching, you know. They weren't checking their sundials, you know, waiting to see, you know, if the sermon was almost over. You know what I mean? They were there to hear the Word of God. Also, Paul obviously wasn't worried, you know, that he was hurting the people's feelings by preaching too long. He went all the way into the morning. You know, people are falling asleep, you know. He just kept preaching. You know, so I just see that the, 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 the desire and the hunger for the Word of God here by both, both by Paul and by the church. And uh, but granted, this was a special circumstance. You know, this, Paul's just coming by this church for a visit. And uh, he actually has to leave in the morning. So, yeah, it is a, it is a special circumstance. We're not going to start preaching till the morning. And then uh, third, the reason I think Luke actually includes this section, the foremost reason he includes this section, is because of this amazing miracle that happens, the, the resurrection of this boy. Um, because the re resurrecting somebody from the dead is impossible. That's impossible to do. You cannot bring somebody back after they are actually dead. This wasn't like CPR. This wasn't some sort of mouth to mouth. This wasn't smelling sauce recitation. This boy was dead. He fell from three stories. Okay, so this is a miracle. This is a miracle. And even in the Bible, um, resurrections are very rare. Does anybody want to take a guess? How many resurrections are there, not counting the foretold resurrection of everyone, but how many resurrections, how many people die and are brought back to life in the Bible? Any guesses? Four or five. Yeah, five, five that are noted, and, I, and I'm pretty sure all the resurrections are noted. That's how significant it is for somebody to come back from death. Um, how about the Old Testament? Does anybody know in the Old Testament what resurrections occur in the Old Testament? Any guesses? Probably shouldn't just guess. There's a million names to pick from, but um, the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, both resurrect someone, both of them. And that's it in the Old Testament, those two men. Um, Jesus resurrects three. He gets the most. It seems fitting. And uh, then we had Peter that we saw already. He resurrected that woman, Dorcas. Remember the woman that the church loved? She had done all those things for the church. She died. They wanted her to be alive so much. They went and sought out the apostle uh, Peter and she resurrected her. Remember we talked about how, man, we should, be one, we should be so loved. We should serve the church like that, that people would want us to be resurrected. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, so here Paul really falls in line with just the mighty um, prophets and messengers and apostles 
of God and that God through him resurrects somebody from the dead. It really just affirms um, the Apostle Paul's apostleship is what it does. Um, so, so this occurs. Paul raises him from the dead. They preach till the, the morning. And so now the following day, Paul and all these men uh, are going to set out for their journey. They're going to head to the city of Miletus, the city of Miletus, which is a port city. And from there, they can set out from the port in Miletus. They can set out across the Mediterranean and make it to Jerusalem where Paul wants to go. Um, but again, it's interesting. The city of Miletus, this port city, is very close to Ephesus. So, again, Paul is right close to the city that we began with, this whole journey in Ephesus. Paul's gone full, full circle all around the Aegean Sea, and he's right back near Ephesus. And uh, notice what happens here, um, because we know that Paul loves this church. He spent the most time with them that, of any other church. And, but Paul wants to get to Jerusalem. And so Paul doesn't want to stop at Ephesus again. You know, one thing... One thing uh, the pastor's wife learns is that if the pastor gets off track in one way, you're, you're gone. You're going to be late. You know, so Paul realizes that as well. He, he, he loves the people there, but he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because he's trying to get to Jerusalem. So look, let's pick up in verse 15, or halfway through 15b. It says, On the following day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to t uh, spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so Paul had originally wanted to get to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover. That plot to kill him happened. He, he didn't get to make it for Passover. He ended up making this 100-mile journey around uh, uh, Macedonia. Now he's wanting to make it by Pentecost. How, how, what's the time period in between Passover and Pentecost? Does anybody remember? It was like one of the first classes we had talking about Pentecost. It's easy to remember. Pente means 50. Yeah. Pente means 50. So it's 50 days um, excursion here that the Apostle Paul took. Um, so the Apostle Paul, he loves the people in Ephesus. He's right there by them. But he knows if he goes to that church, he, he's going to be late um, to Jerusalem with this gift. And he wants to make it by Pentecost. So... The Apostle Paul has to do the next best thing. He doesn't go to Ephesus, but notice what he does, verse 17. It says, from Miletus, this port city that's very close to Ephesus, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called to himself the elders of the church. Okay, so instead of Paul going to the church, he calls for the elders to come to him. In some way this would have just been a, a, a more direct, a quicker way to, to communicate with them and to, and to minister to them. And uh, from there, that, that the next following section, from verse 17 to following, we'll cover that next week. But this is going to be a very significant section, one of the most, I think, in the book of Acts, as, as Paul has such a very uh, deep relationship with the people in Ephesus, with the elders there of the church. Um, Paul is really going to give them a very intimate section, a very intimate ministering to them in this next section in chapter 20. We'll look at it next week, but... Um, it is, it's, going to, it's kind of like 2 Corinthians that we've been looking at. 2 Corinthians is one of Paul's most personal letters where he's revealing, you know, the, the, the thoughts of his heart to them. He's going to pour out his heart to the, the, the uh, elders in the church of Ephesus as well. So we'll look at that next week. Um, so, yeah, let's stop right there. It's a good stopping point, and we're doing good on time too. So does anybody have any questions?
before we head to class. Either you guys aren't getting nothing, or I'm just the best teacher you've ever had. One or the other. Best teacher. Best teacher. Okay, let's go with that one. Okay. Okay, well, let's pray, and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, Father, I thank you for the, for the same grace that you've given us, God, in revealing yourself to us as you did to the people in Ephesus. Father, I thank you for this church. Father, I thank you for the, the ministry of Pastor Emilio and his desire to just preach through the Word of God. And, and he's put such a high premium on, on your gospel and theology and the Word of God, Father, that um, it's bled into us, Father, and that, that we have the same desire and the same love for your Word that you, that you gave to the Ephesians. Father, I pray that we would take advantage of this and, and not um, let it go to waste. I, I pray that our study would lead us to greater faith, that we would not um, turn away from your word one day, that we would not be rebuked like you rebuke the church in Ephesus. Father, we pray that even today as we go to worship, that we would be stirred up to um, place ourselves underneath your word, that it would encourage us, convict if necessary, Father, that we would be sanctified, that we would have um, a lasting faith, God, that would uh, benefit us eternally, that would benefit you and your kingdom. Father, we pray for just true, genuine faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.